0: I don't think any of us would argue that we live in a world that's desperately in need of change. We grieve about acts of violence. Just saw this morning there were two horrific bombings in Baghdad. We grieve for people who live their lives in poverty, hunger, famine. People who who live in hopelessness. We lament that there are billions of people who don't know anything about Jesus, much less have a relationship with him. We also grieve and lament and yearn for change in our own lives. We, As disciples of Christ, we wish we were more like Christ, that we were more patient and more loving, more compassionate and more self-control. We wish that the spirit of Christ would be seen in us far more clearly than it is. And we lament the many times when our responses to things in the world and to people honestly is apathy. We lament that too often when we really take stock of our lives, what we see It's mediocrity. And sometimes we can push it aside and act like it doesn't exist, but in those moments when it's just us, we know the truth. As we ponder the circumstances of the world and need of change in our own lives and, and, and our church and our communities and our nation... We wonder, what can we do? And we try to do all kinds of things, and they're good. The, the activity that we do is, is important. but Ultimately, when we read the Scriptures, we discover and we're reminded that if anything is going to happen, God's going to do it, not us. And that means that the most important and essential thing that we can do is to pray. That's why we are embarking on this this prayer event. Three weeks, seven days a week, 24 hours a day of prayer. And, And I'm hoping that every one of you will have at least one hour as a part of that. And we have developed a prayer room, actually a series of three rooms downstairs, that you shut the first door and the place is yours. And you may be thinking, okay, I wouldn't mind being a part of that, but what do I do for an hour? Or you may be thinking, I wonder exactly what's going on in those rooms. Well, we just want to give you just a real brief glimpse of what might happen. As you can tell, there are a number of creative, maybe different things in that room that you might be thinking about with prayer. And we've done that intentionally because we believe there is no right or wrong way to pray. I mean, look at the Scriptures. The scriptures speak to us about all kinds of different ways that people pray. Prayer can be petitioned. It can be entreaty, it can be question and argument, it can be confession or thanksgiving or adoration, it can be praise, meditation, intercession. And the prayers that are recorded in Scripture are not limited to a particular place. Granted, most of the prayers of God's people take place in places like this, the tabernacle, the temple, the natural settings, but people in the Scriptures pray a lot of other places too. People pray in prison, in a storm-tossed ship, in the midst of a stoning on rooftops in secluded places. Jesus prays on the cross. Daniel prays on his knees in front of his window. And Scripture paints a picture of people praying in a lot of different bodily shapes. You know, even in a in psalm we read this morning, we saw a lot of different things about prayer. And when you read the scripture, some people stand to pray, some people uh, kneel, some people lie prostrate on the floor, some people pray with their head bowed, other people pray with their hands lifted toward the heavens. Some people in agony of soul pray beating their breasts. Tears are a big part of people's prayers. Prayers. Some prayers are silent meditation, just words formed in the thoughts of our minds. Other prayers are prayed so loudly, everyone hears. The Psalms tell us that singing and music are a big part of prayers. The Psalms, like a lot of our songs, are prayers. And in some cases, dancing is a way of expressing prayer. You know, you come back from a military victory as a part of the the, the festival that the Jews would celebrate as a means of expressing joy for what God has done. There is no right or wrong form of prayer. And that's why the room has many different creative ways of praying. And we are called and given the opportunity and, and invited to pray in creative ways Because we worship a God who loves to create. Think about all that God does in creation that's far beyond what He would have to do. There are 9,000 species of birds in the world. Do we need more than one? There are are 250,000 species of plants in the world, 550 different kinds of roses. There are about 5,000 breeds of dogs and 20,000 different species of fish and 6,000 species of reptiles, 4,500 different kinds of mammals, 2,500 different kinds of of amphibians. There's 6 million different kinds of people. All this creative energy and, and we haven't even gotten to fruits and vegetables yet. I was in the store the other day, and Cindy bought a squash, and she went to check on something else, and I was checking out, and a thing came by, and the guy picked it up and said, "What kind of squash is this?" Like, I don't know. It's a squash. He said, "Well, there are a lot of them," and he showed me the screen. There were like twenty-five of them on the screen. I said, "Pick the cheapest one." them. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I've now discovered there are between 100 and 150 different kinds of squash. If God creates plants and animals and vegetation with so much variety, what would make us think that something as essential as prayer would be limited to something very small? When you enter the prayer room, there will be guides that you can use to help you through your hour, and everything in the room that is an activity kind of thing will have instructions about how you might want to use it. But there really is no right or wrong way to spend your time. If you want to sit in a chair and meditate for an hour, sit in a chair and meditate for an hour. If you want to lie on the floor for an hour, lie on the floor. If if you want to... To, to pray the prayers of the ancient church, pray the prayers of the ancient church. If you want to turn up the music and dance around the room, turn up the music and dance around the room. If you want to pace the floor, pace the floor. If you want to create things with clay or, or paint pictures, do it. It's just you and God. And however you want to express the desires and the burdens and the gratitude of your heart, do it. Because the truth is, for most of us, prayer is a lot more than what we typically imagine. You say, well, there's, so there's no rules. No, There's nothing. No rules. Well, okay, there's one. One rule. That when you come, whatever you do, when you come, you come with your heart open to God. That's the only thing, and and that may involve trying some new things that you haven't done before. But it's really more about just coming with being ready for God to work in you, so you don't so you don't miss. You're not closed off to what God wants to do in you. Jesus reminds us that the Father loves to pour out the Holy Spirit upon those who ask Him. And we rejoice in that promise. But are we asking with no strings attached? Are we asking in a spirit of openness to any way that God chooses to work? Are we asking for God to really bring change in us and through us? Or are we actually holding back a little bit? Limiting the spirit. Afraid of change because we're afraid of what the spirit may ask of us or want to do in us or do through us. The only guideline is openness. And this openness might well mean experiencing something through a form of prayer that stretches you in a different way than how you typically pray. I suspect that there was something you saw in the video that you would think was foreign and might even think that makes me a little uncomfortable. And that's okay. But is your desire for God and for God's miraculous work in you, is that desire greater than the apprehension and the fear you might have of how God might nudge you to something you haven't done before? My experience has been, and I've seen this experience in other people, is that openness to God in small things, like a little bit different kind of praying, leads to openness in bigger things. But the, same is, the opposite is also true, that being closed off about those little things that God might be nudging us to do in prayer will lead to being closed off to God in the bigger things. No one's going to know what you do or you don't do. In the room, and no one's demanding that you try anything new. But I wonder if it's possible, knowing God's history, that that point in which God might well say the most profound thing to you or want to work most specifically in you might well be through your willingness to do something that's outside your comfort area. Something different, something new. And that may unlock the Holy Spirit's work in your heart because you are open at that little point. Now, I'm reminded of John Wesley, who was born and raised a proper Anglican. You know, he believed you do things in the right way at the right time and in the right places, and that meant for him, when you preach the word of God, you did it in the church. The only right and proper sermons were in a church. Unfortunately, the churches of England began to close their doors to his evangelical message, and so his friend George Whitfield began to speak to him—actually, pester him, be a better term—about going out and preaching out of doors. Whitfield had been doing it for a while and found it very successful. And Wesley was extremely resistant to that. He wanted to preach the gospel. He was in this quandary. He wanted to preach the gospel, but everything in his training and his experience fought against that crude practice that Whitfield was pestering him about. He eventually went out and tried it. He went out into the fields and the city squares and the marketplaces and alongside the road. And after he had tried it, he wrote in his journal, I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields, of which Whitfield set me example on Sunday. I've been all my life, till very lately, so tenacious at every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it wasn't done in the church. This is gut-wrenching for him. A couple of days later, he wrote in his journal, at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and I proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation. Speaking from a little eminence of ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. Most scholars of the Methodist movement will tell you that had Wesley not made that decision, the Methodist movement would be virtually nothing. That decision had so much to do with God putting his hand on that movement and moving it in ways that Wesley or anybody else could have never dreamed. That kind of openness is difficult for us. It always has been. I mean, it's human nature. But this is the point that that Jesus addresses in Matthew 11 when he says to the Father, thank you that you have hidden these things, what the kingdom is about, from those who are learned and wise, and instead you've revealed them to little children. Little children who are inherently open and willing to try new things are commended by Jesus as the very model of how his followers ought to live. Remember when the disciples are trying to push the children away from Jesus? Jesus says to the disciples, look, unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty harsh statement to make. And children that are typically considered insignificant by most of the world are considered by Jesus the very models to be followed in the kingdom. Why? Why? Because they have an openness to new things. They don't have preconceptions about how it ought to be done. They're open to new light, and they are dependent and trusting of their parents. It's amazing how this talk about prayer keeps coming back to our Heavenly Father as the foundation of our prayers. Our dependence, our trust of Him. In Luke 11, Our loving Heavenly Father is at the heart of Jesus teaching about prayer. When Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. For if you earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And here again in Matthew 11, in the last six verses alone, Jesus says, Mentions the the Father no less than five times. It's because our Father loves us and wants what is best for us and desires to pour out good gifts upon us and to know us in close relationship that we can step out and risk and do things that are uncomfortable for us and come to Him in prayer with openness. Because yes, He may ask difficult things of us, but it's always for our good. in the context of the Father's love and grace and the giving of himself through the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks here in Matthew 11 about yokes and burdens and rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I read that. My first question is: Is this yoke really easy? Is this burden really light? I think there are going to be there are people through the ages who might take issue with that. You know, people who have suffered and sacrificed even to their very lives. The Israelites certainly are understanding of a yoke. They use the yoke to describe their slavery in Egypt and the yoke to describe their, their slavery of the people around them through the years and their yoke to describe the Babylonian captivity. And now, as Jesus speaks, they're under the yoke of the Romans. There's always a yoke. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm going to take away the yoke. And he says, I'm going to put a different kind of yoke on. And we wrestle with taking that yoke, with receiving it. We fight trying to keep away from it. And he won't force it on us. We have to bend our necks to take it. It's not easy for us to surrender until we begin to see we're surrendering to our loving, heavenly Father. Who wants what's best for us. wants to lead us in his yoke and so the message says are you tired worn out burned out on religion come to me get away with me you'll recover your life I'll show you how to take a real rest walk with me and work with me watch how I do it learn the unforced rhythms of grace I won't lay anything heavy or ill fitting on you keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly is it fascinating when Jesus describes himself here he doesn't say Uh, learn of me and I'm powerful and awesome, though he is. He doesn't say he is perfect and he's truth, though he is. He says, learn that I am gentle and humble in spirit. If Jesus has that kind of spirit in his relationship with the Father and with us, how much more do we need it? Our prayers are most like Christ when we pray in a spirit of gentle and humble surrender. In fact, it's the highest form to which all of our prayers eventually are focused. Surrender. Surrender that like a child acknowledges their need for their father. And is dependent on their father. I sometimes wonder if this isn't why maybe... The unbelievers cry for help. For God's help might be a more pleasing form of prayer than maybe some of our prayers. Maybe it's something of why what Jesus is speaking to when He warns these cities, these cities that are so familiar to Him and Him and and, and them to Him. Capernaum's his adopted hometown. He travels through these cities all the time, but they've missed Him because they're arrogant and they're closed. Jesus isn't doing things the way they think he should. He doesn't follow the patterns that they have developed. And so they push him away. And Jesus says, because you've done that, when Judgment Day comes, you know your pagan neighbors to the north, Tyre and Sidon, they're going to be better off than you are. Let me take that one step further. He says, you remember Sodom, the very model of wickedness through history, Sodom's going to be better off than you are. Because you've known so much. You've heard so much. You've seen so much. And you've rejected me. And that's got to be a word for us. We who know so much of Christ. We who have so many opportunities to hear and to see Christ. We who wrestle with our own arrogance and apathy about Christ. It's not a coincidence that on this day, and we're talking about this facet of prayer, we're also doing some things that remind us of what God is doing in other places of the world in his church. Because we need to be humbled before what God is doing in the other places of the world through his church. Because in this nation, we tend to think that what if other people are doing things different from the way we do it, they're wrong and we need to change them. And the reality is, maybe God is at work in them because they're a lot more open to His Spirit than we are. And we need to be learning from them. We need to see what God is doing in places of this nation and of this world that He's not doing here and ask, how do we need to learn from them? to Change some things. That kind of humble spirit is what we're asking for as we come and we pray. And as we begin this prayer vigil next Sunday, uh, it, my I think my gravest concern is that we will get to the end of of those three weeks and we will have prayed for more than 500 hours but we will have done it without a spirit of openness and we'll walk out maybe worse off than when we started. Because for 500 hours God's been speaking to us and God's been showing himself to us and God's been working in us and we pushed him away. But if we come with the spirit of openness, letting God nudge us in places that make us uncomfortable, letting God work in ways that we don't really know exactly what He wants to do. If If we are willing to come in that kind of spirit, who knows what God will do? That's the only guideline. That's the only requirement come with that spirit. And I believe that if we come with that kind of spirit, God will change us and he will work in us and God will use us to be a catalyst to change the world. Far beyond anything any of us could ever dream or imagine. You know, the the coffee cup sleeve is, is one of the it's one of the uh, proofs that necessity is the mother of invention. It, w- it was invented by a gentleman named Jim Chelosi. He owned a coffee store in Belmont, California. Opened it in 1988 before it was a really big deal. And it took a while. The business was slow. But eventually it caught on and somebody else invested with him. And they opened a second store. And he went, As he was sitting in his store and as he was working in the stores, he noticed that Person after person kept coming up and ordering a cup of coffee and then say, can I have a second cup? Because I want to put it in there because it's just too hot. And he watched this happen a lot and then he looked it up and he realized every one of those second cups was costing him eight cents. Eight cents adds up if you sell much coffee. He was sitting in the store one day and one more person came up and said, can I have a second cup? And he thought, I've got to do something about this. And he took out a napkin, you know, all the great inventions started on a napkin. And he, and, and he drew a little diagram of something that ended up like this. And he researched it and found that these could be produced for three cents. They're saving a nickel every time. It wasn't long before he thought, you know, I could advertise on that. And that dissolved the three cent cost. And then other people saw, and they thought it was a great idea, and so he sold the idea and started getting royalties, and he is now a very rich man. And I'm sure every month he still gets a pretty sizable royalty check because of a little piece of paper. I was in Java this week and drinking some coffee and talking to somebody, and I was looking at this cup, and this, this particular sleeve was on it. And it intrigued me as I was reading it. I don't usually pay attention to these kinds of things, but it says, Gadzooks, it's Larry's Beans, Raleigh, North Carolina. And then it says 100% fair trade, organic, and slow roasted. And I turned around and it says, 10 out of 10 pumpkin carvers prefer fair trade coffee. I did not know that. And then I got to this. And I stopped. It says... We're changing the world. Are you in? LarrysBeans.com And I read that and I thought to myself, Wow. If a coffee company believes they can change the world, how much more faith ought we to have when we pray? About our God working in us and through us to change the world. Three weeks, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 504 hours of prayer, countless lives changed. Will your life be one of those? And through you, will there be others? Gracious Heavenly Father, It's audacious of us to ask that you might use us to change the world, but we're asking. And we're asking that you give us a spirit of openness. To what you want to do. And how you want to do it. Help us. Through Christ Jesus. Amen.